Welcome to chapter 83 of A History of England. I'm David Beeson, and after spending last week on British behaviour in India, it's time to turn to another beneficiary of that empire's rule, Britain's neighbour, Ireland. That means, funnily enough, we're dealing with Cornwallis again. Fresh from his success in India, which had no doubt cancelled out at least in part his failures in America, he was ready to try his hand on that other hard nut to crack, Ireland, where rebellion had broken out in 1798, as we discussed before. A rebellion or an uprising, depending on whether you're looking at it from the British or Irish point of view. We've already seen that he'd made a successful start to his time as Lord Lieutenant in Dublin by a swift and brutal solution of the military situation, at least. Pitt had sent him 60,000 men, so he only needed a fraction of them to mop up the 1,100-strong French landing. As for the Irish insurgents themselves, they'd already been dealt a decisive blow before he'd even shown up. Unlike a great many military victors over uprisings, remember Nelson handing over Neapolitan rebels by the hundred for execution? He tried to be economical with cruelty. He personally reviewed 400 court cases involving men viewed as rebels and confirmed only 131 death sentences. 131 too many, you might feel, but a lot fewer than the Protestant elite would have liked. In any case, harsh or lenient, military action against the rebellion dealt with just one outbreak of unrest. What was needed was a long-term solution to the grievances of the Irish so that such rebellions stopped happening altogether. You'll remember that Pitt had previously tried to put relations between Britain and Ireland on a sounder footing by implementing free trade between the two islands. That had failed because British businessmen simply weren't prepared to compete on equal terms with their Irish counterparts. So, while Pitt had managed to get his proposals accepted by the separate Irish Parliament in Dublin, when they'd come back for consideration by the Westminster Parliament, MPs representing British commercial interests had so massively amended them in their favour that it became impossible to get Dublin to accept the changes. Getting the two parliaments to agree had proved impossible. So what was the solution? Easy. Have just one parliament instead. After all, just under a century earlier, the same trick had been pulled off in Britain. With the 1707 Act of Union, the English and Scottish parliaments had merged. Or, more accurately, the English Parliament had absorbed the Scottish. The new Parliament met in the same physical building in Westminster as the old purely English one, and Scotland had been granted just one more seat in the joint Parliament than the single English county of Cornwall. Now that British Parliament could merge with the Irish one, or, again, absorb it. Absorption was the aim from the outset. At the height of the troubles in Ireland, the British government, as well as using force to repress the uprising, had also made some concessions to Catholic Irishmen. 
The Catholic Relief Act of 1793 allowed Catholics into the universities and opened some civil and military appointments to them. It even gave them the right to vote, though, as for Protestants, only to those holding a certain amount of property. Since a lot of Irish Catholics had seen their property taken over and handed to Protestants, the measure didn't help that many of them. In any case, Catholics still couldn't sit in Parliament. Now Pitt decided that some movement was necessary. To win support for the union of the two parliaments, he needed to offer further Catholic emancipation to secure Irish Catholic compliance. That would mean repealing the Test Act, which excluded from either parliament anyone whose faith prevented them swearing an oath rejecting several core Catholic beliefs. Pitt was okay with relieving Catholics of this exclusion, but knew that it would be met with dismay in Ireland, where the ruling Protestant minority would be terrified of the idea of the Catholics eventually winning a majority in Parliament and outvoting them. That would deal a fatal blow to what was referred to as the Protestant ascendancy, the domination of Irish affairs by Protestants. Union of the Parliaments would solve that problem. With a single Parliament, repealing the Test Act and therefore allowing Catholics to be elected would simply not threaten the Protestant majority. There were too many solidly Protestant English, Welsh and Scottish constituencies for that to happen. This meant that enacting emancipation and union together was a clever compromise. It would relieve the Catholics of political restrictions and make them more fully emancipated citizens of the new United Kingdom, while at the same time shoring up the Protestant dominance of British and Irish politics that the Test Act was designed to protect. Both Cornwallis as Lord Lieutenant and his Chief Secretary for Ireland, Lord Castlereagh, the alias by which a certain Robert Stewart was known, thought emancipation essential to the project of parliamentary union. Britain has the reputation of being good at working out compromises, so you might think this was a win-win proposal that was sure of success. Sadly, however, Britain's also good at rejecting compromises if they even hint at undermining the power of a well-entrenched elite group. The very idea of Catholic emancipation was a horror for the Protestant establishment and in particular for its leader, the still unfortunately redoubtable figure of the king. Writing to Cornwallis, George III described himself as a strong friend to the union of the two kingdoms, but made it clear that he would become an enemy to the movement if I thought a change in the situation of the Roman Catholics would attend this measure. George was convinced that allowing emancipation would breach his coronation oath to uphold the Anglican Church. This was all happening in 1800. That was the year when, as we heard before, the war turned seriously against the Austrians, the only other major power alongside Britain, still in the Second Coalition fighting France. It was also the year when, as you'll remember, Pitt sent an army of 15,000 to fight alongside the Turks to defeat the remnants of the French army isolated in Egypt. 
On top of all that, it was a year when Pitt suffered a serious bout of the recurring illness that dogged him throughout his life. In October, this was so bad that he had to retreat for three weeks to the home of his long-standing friend, the son of his father's old physician, Henry Addington. Pitt was also facing food riots and struggling to find ways of responding to shortages. Increasingly conservative in outlook, he explained to the House of Commons, once his health allowed it, that he wasn't keen on the visionary advantages of a crude, untried theory, which in this case meant all that radical stuff promoted by Adam Smith and his followers about completely free trade. Instead, he tried to address food supply problems by such measures as premiums on food imports. Given everything he had to deal with and in his uncertain state of health, maybe it isn't surprising that Pitt had trouble summoning up the energy to do battle with the powerful forces led by the king opposing him on Catholic emancipation. In any case, it wasn't in itself an issue for which he'd shown much enthusiasm before. Instead, it seems to have been little more than a means to an end for him towards securing the parliamentary union he really cared about. To achieve his aim, he found himself accommodating conservative views. That may have been a little easier for him, as he was increasingly moving away from the more radical outlook of his youth. He would not use the union of the parliaments, he assured the House of Commons, as a pretext for the reform of parliament itself. He had moved away from his enthusiasm for reform, as he admitted. I have not forgotten what I have myself formally said and sincerely felt upon this subject, but I know that all opinions must necessarily be subservient to times and circumstances, and that man who talks of his consistency merely because he holds the same opinion for 10 or 15 years, when the circumstances under which that opinion was originally formed are totally changed, is a slave to the most idle vanity." Indeed, his view had changed so materially that even had war and economic difficulties not made it a bad time for any kind of constitutional change, he would no longer back reform anyway. I think it right to declare, he told the Commons, my most decided opinion that, even if the times were proper for experiments, any, even the slightest change in such a constitution must be considered as an evil. In the end, on parliamentary union, he opted for a fudge. He let it be understood by implication that union of the two parliaments would be followed by emancipation, but gave no explicit commitment to making it happen. This reduced the proposal to the bare bones needed to merge the two parliaments. Reform or Catholic emancipation would be shelved. Both parliaments then voted in favour. Two countries, Britain and Ireland, constitutionally separated but with the same king, gave up their independence and joined together to form something new. Welcome to the launching on the 1st of January 1801 of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Ireland. The Irish received the princely allocation of 100 seats in the Westminster Parliament, just over 15% of the total of 658. 
That's despite having a population of 5.5 million people out of a UK total of 16 million, just over a third. That wholly vindicated Pitt's forecast that Catholics, even if they won a majority of the Irish seats, would never be able to challenge Protestant hegemony. Pitt had let it be understood he would push for emancipation, so, with the Union done, he pushed for it. That's when he realised at last that he was up against an immovable obstacle. In the past, he'd always found a way to manoeuvre George III into accepting what he wanted. But this was an absolute red line for the king. He believed that a nation might allow more than one religion to be observed, but if it allowed men of more than one to hold state office, it would be ensuring its own downfall. Cornwallis had claimed that if Mr Pitt is firm, he will meet with no difficulty. But Pitt's own cabinet was split on the issue with a powerful minority against emancipation. As for the king, he could not have made his position clearer. I shall look on every man as my personal enemy who proposes that question to me. Pitt wrote to the king trying to persuade him to back the measure, but the king replied that he could not consider it. After 17 years as Prime Minister, Pitt felt he had no choice but to go for the nuclear option of offering to resign. And, after 17 years of having Pitt as his Prime Minister, George III accepted the resignation. It wasn't the war, it wasn't the food shortages, it wasn't the troubles of the East India Company. What had brought Pitt down in 1801 was that perpetual festering problem, only ultimately resolved by separation, British rule in Ireland. With Pitt's fall, Catholic emancipation, like the parliamentary reform he'd championed in his youth but abandoned more recently, would move firmly onto the back burner. It wouldn't be revisited until over a quarter of a century later. You'll remember that 1801 was the year of Nelson's great victory at the Battle of Copenhagen. But though Pitt had been Prime Minister when Hyde Parker and Nelson had set out to take on the League of Armed Neutrality in the Baltic Sea, when it came to the victory, it was his successor who would be in charge. Who that successor was and how he dealt with the problems of war and peace that followed is something we'll tackle in our next episode. Thanks for listening to this one. <laughs>